0: Strategic Financial Partners presents The Rush Hour Podcast,
1: where the rubber meets the road on the economy, stock market, and personal finance. Now here's your host, Matt Rush. Welcome to The Rush Hour Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rush, and with me today is Brinker Capital Chief Behavioral Officer, Dr. Daniel Crosby. Brinker is an independent investment manager with over $25 billion in assets under management. Daniel has published several best selling books, including The Behavioral Investor, The Laws of Wealth, Personal Benchmark, and You're Not That Great. His ideas and commentary have appeared in major news outlets, including CNBC, The Huffington Post, and Think Advisor. He was named to one of the top 40 under 40 by Investment News. Daniel, welcome to the program, and thank you for joining us. No, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Hey, before we get going, would you mind telling us what a behavioral officer is and some of the things that you're responsible for at Brinker?
0: Yeah. So really, I sort of study the intersection of mind and markets. So I uh, I work with our clients to help them make optimal decisions uh, when they're feeling emotional. And there's certainly been a lot of that going around lately uh, in the age of coronavirus and everything else we've got going on right now. So I really just study and consult around helping people make optimal decisions under conditions of uncertainty.
1: Awesome. Well, that's uh, a... That- that's definitely something I think is unique out there. So I just wanted to go over that. Um, but let's go ahead and jump right in and talk about investor emotions. Uh, you already mentioned the, the volatility in the market. And I know that from my role speaking with clients and advisors, fear affects everyone. Um, and you say that there's no shame in being scared as long as that fear doesn't paralyze us. So what are some things investors can do to overcome these fears?
0: So, an investor who's going to make rational decisions really needs uh, three things. There's really three legs to the stool of good decision making, and um, they all start with with E. So, the first thing they need is the right education. Right, they need to know a little bit about how markets work. They need to know the difference between a stock and a bond. They need to know a little bit about education. Right, they need to know just enough. The second thing they need is the right environment. This is going to be the right portfolio, the right mix of assets. That's going to help get them to their goals, uh, but not scare them off the ride in the process, right? Uh, from someone like me, a behavioral psychologist, we don't think that the optimal portfolio is necessarily the one that gets you the highest returns in abstraction. The best portfolio is the one that gets you the highest returns that you can live with. You know, what I call anxiety adjusted returns, sleep well at night returns. And so the third E is encouragement. This is where a financial professional or an advisor comes in. Encouragement is that just-in-time hand-holding, that just-in-time advice that uh, in a moment of panic, in a moment of fear, we know from my research that we lose 13% of our IQ uh, in a moment of financial stress. So even if we have the right education, even if we have the right portfolio, all too often we sort of lose our cool at the, the least opportune moment, and so that advisor's there to give us encouragement. So the, the three things you need, the right education, the right environment or portfolio, uh, and then the right encouragement from a, from a coach or financial professional.
1: All right. So let's talk about that environment. There, there are many times that investors will worry about things beyond their control, and you've written about winning the day. Uh, tell us what this means and maybe some steps that we can approach uh, to have that mindset.
0: Yeah, so I, I wrote this this piece called Win, Win the Day, a blog post called Win the Day, uh, right sort of in the, in the midst of the initial month of quarantine. Usually, I'm here in my office, usually behind me, I have this poster with all my goals for the year, you know, everything from gym goals to travel goals to family goals and everything in between. Uh, and I looked at that thing one day, and it looked like a postcard from Mars, right? Because, you know, it was just like traveling, like, when am I going to do that? And, you know... All these goals just didn't make sense anymore, and I didn't know uh, what six months or a year from now would look like. So I refocused my efforts on winning the day, just trying to have the best day I could every day. Um, and so the way that I've done that is I've used a five-part model from psychologist Martin Seligman. He calls it the PERMA model. So there's five things he looks at that sort of comprise a good day. So the P is for positive experiences. This is just fun you know, something light, light lighthearted or joyful. Uh, The E is for engagement or hard work. The R is for relationships or, you know, connecting with people we love. The M is for meaning, doing something bigger than ourselves, doing something outside of ourselves and our own self-interest. And the A is for advancement or learning something new or growing in some way. So that's what I'm trying to do for myself. That's what I'm trying to do with my kids to win the day is get all five of these things, You know, get some exercise, connect with the people I love, do something good in the world, do a little hard work, have a little fun. Uh, that's sort of the model I'm using to win the day.
1: Got it. So how, how do you approach it whenever you feel like you... Didn't exactly make a step forward in that day without beating yourself up. Do you just refocus and and just take it one step at a time? The next day is a new day, or or do you try to correct yourself and do a little bit of uh, course correction along the way?
0: Yeah, so it's a good uh, it's a good distinction. So psychologists make the distinction between guilt and shame. You know, shame is this sort of self-defeating, beating yourself up, like, oh, I'm stupid, I failed, sort of thing. But guilt is saying, you know what, I didn't give it my all today. Like, I could have done better. So I try and differentiate between, you know, if I didn't win the day, if I didn't kind of hit all my goals, uh, was it because of things outside of my control? Was it, you know, any fault of my own? Is there something I can do better? Um, Or is it just, you know sleep it off and and wake up ready to go again the next day. So I try and keep that framework in mind between guilt and shame. Is this sort of an awareness that's going to move me forward, or is this an awareness uh, with which I'm just beating myself up and making myself feel bad?
1: Got it. So in your book, The Behavioral Investor, you talk about a third way to investing. and, And the first and second way are active and passive. Without giving away all your trade secrets, could you maybe give us a 30,000-foot view of what it is that you're talking about in that third way?
0: Yeah. So I think active and passive approaches both have advantages and disadvantages. And I think we want to live in a world where we get uh, the, the, all the advantages we can. So in general, you know, and some, you know, some investment vehicles fall somewhere in the middle, uh, but in general, one of the advantages of, of passive management is that it's inexpensive. So one of the things we want to be cognizant of in this third way is whether it's active or, or passive, we want to make sure we're paying a fair price for the products we're getting. Um, one of the other things we look at is the level of diversification. You know, uh, We want to be diversified between and within asset classes, but at some point, uh, there can become excessive diversification or diversification. And so I, I'm sort of trying to straddle the line there again in the middle and get people diversified enough that they have their bases covered, but convicted enough that they can that, that they can hold products uh, that allow for the potential for outperformance. Uh, the other thing I'm a big advocate of that that uh, some active and some passive approaches share uh, is automation. So if you look at the research on uh, you know, investment vehicles that do well. Uh, a lot of what you find is that ninety-four percent of the time, um, simple rules beat investor discretion. So, uh, an investment product that just follows some simple rules about how to proceed and how to construct its portfolio is likely to do better uh, than one that has sort of a hotshot manager at the helm making, uh, you know, making decisions. Uh, that, that are, you know, big, big picture decisions that are, that are sort of high flying decisions. So I look for, you know, an affordable, appropriately priced rules based process that's diversified. And I think that kind of splits the difference between those two camps.
1: I really feel a lot of empathy towards investors, particularly new investors during this market, because let's be honest, uh, the task that they're facing is is very daunting with the spike in volatility. Uh, We've seen markets rise and fall at at breakneck paces, uh, and it's really brought to the forefront risk tolerance. Knowing about risk and feeling it are two different things. So how can investors assess their ability to tolerate that risk uh, during difficult times?
0: Yeah, so there's really three elements to risk assessment, and uh, we don't always measure all of them. So the, the three things you need to keep in mind, the first is your risk tolerance. Uh, your risk tolerance is your long-term attitudes towards risk and reward trade-offs, okay? This tends to be pretty um, static over a lifetime. People's risk tolerance doesn't tend to change a lot, and so we'll get to that in a second because that's counter to what most people think, but it's true, uh, the, the second piece that we're looking at is risk composure. So composure is your age and your level of wealth. Okay, so I'm 40. So in some respects, I have a lot more ability to take risks than someone my same age, excuse me, than someone 30 years older than me who has a comparable level of wealth because I have more time to, to bounce back. Uh, from from those, those uh, moments of volatility. So risk compo- excuse me, risk capacity has to do with how much time you've got and how much money you've got. And then the third element of risk is the psychological element and this is the one that we, we don't measure that much. You know basically any financial advisor will give you a risk tolerance measure. The third one is called risk composure, which is really just your level of anxiety. You know your level of anxiety about the markets, so people's long-term attitudes about risk and reward don't tend to change that much. If you ask someone who is selling, you know, in a moment of panic, who's liquidating their account, if you ask them like, hey, do you think this is the, the thing you should be doing? They're going to say, no, like, I, you know, I know this isn't smart, but I just can't take it anymore. So risk composure is sort of your tendency to emotionally capitulate and so we really need to know about all three of these things. We need to know about our long-term attitudes. We need to know about our capacity to take risk based on our age and, and level of wealth. Uh, but we also need to know uh, about, perhaps most importantly, our psychology and, and how you know, likely we are to have those attitudes shift at a time of volatility. And you know, back to your original question, the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. So like if you look if you've been investing for a couple of years look at what you did in 2008 2009 like that's the best predictor of what you're going to do the next time we get volatility it's not your answers to a you know a five question questionnaire from your financial advisor so there needs to be both those assessments which are important but imperfect and also just a look at the history of that client as well
1: So I know from reading your your blog post that you do a fair amount of encouraging people to take care of themselves. Um, does that really go into the risk composure, just as far as uh, being able to uh, really address uh, uncertainty and fear head on, or kind of kind of talk about what it is that you're actually trying to accomplish by getting people to take care of themselves?
0: Yeah, so it's it's interesting. Like uh, I, I used to be a uh, I used to be a shrink. I, my, my PhD is, as a, I'm a clinical psychologist by education. And so, you know, right, right around my grad school days, I was actually a psychologist before spending, you know, the rest of my career in financial services. And uh, one of the pieces of advice I would give people that was really sound that they would ignore pretty consistently was to, was to take care of themselves. You know, you would, you would have people, I mean, I, I literally remember someone coming into my office and going, you know, oh, I'm sweating, my heart's racing, I have anxiety. And, you know, you, you do a little asking around and they're like living on a diet of black coffee and Mountain Dew. And you're like, well, like I know where we should start, uh, you know, because there's such a, there's such a tight connection between the, but there's such a tight connection between the brain and body. If you can get your body in order, your brain will often come around. So doing things like, exercising, doing things like connecting with loved ones, doing things like eating well and avoiding excessive consumption of uh, you know, alcohol or caffeine, all of these things don't seem like there's a very straight line between you know, how much caffeine you drink or how, how often you exercise and how you behave with your money. But there is actually a very strong connection between things like taking care of yourself and taking care of your wealth. So it's it's, it's low-hanging fruit that's often ignored.
1: Well, I am disappointed to know that black coffee and Mountain Dew is not the recipe for success, but I, I do feel like I've learned a lot from you about our, our attitudes and our capacity to handle risk and just the overall psychology around that and just taking care of yourself is is kind of the the bow that wraps it all up. So, Daniel, thank you very much for joining us today on the program. Much appreciated.
0: My pleasure. Thank you.
1: For more content from Daniel and his team at Brinker, you can follow him on Twitter at Daniel Crosby and check out his latest book, Behavioral Investor on Audible and Amazon. Or you can follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter at Matt Rush SFP. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to be notified as new episodes are released. And if you're interested in checking out our firm or would like to contact me, look us up online at strategicfinancialpartners.com.